and follow the living person of Jesus Christ who died to create a people for himself, a worshiping people. That's why we're here. And so my hope this morning is that we'll, we'll quickly see the nuts and bolts of why we do what we do. We're going to get into that. But more than that, I want us to see how deeply needy we are, how incredibly dependent we are on Jesus, and how this helps us to do that, to express that. So what does Sunday mornings for worship look like for us? So I believe that there are four major components uh, of our corporate worship that shape who we are at the Crossing Church uh, on Sundays. So those four things are song, prayer, the word, and the ordinances. Those four things make up every gathering here on, on Sunday mornings. We're going to spend uh, the first of that in song. Why, why song? And, and I think a majority of my time is, is here as I was writing. It just kind of came out this way. Um, but I want us to look at Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to be jumping around a lot. So if you want to just watch the screen, you can do that. If you want to keep up in your Bible, you can do that as well. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, 19 through 20. says that we should speak to each other in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we see that, that the expression of our gratitude and our thankfulness is through song, through music. In Colossians uh, 3.16, this is one of my favorite verses talking about worship and singing. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And so we see in Colossians that the point of us singing together is not for yourself, but it's, it's to teach and admonish each other. And so, yeah, there's, there's times when the songs that we sing speak to you directly. And, and, you, and you feel that, and you're, and you're, you're worshiping, and you're, and you're praising God. But, but more than that, what's happening is we are reminding each other of the gospel. To hear, to hear the people of God singing the truth about who God is, is teaching and admonishing one another. And so there's times when, um, and I do this more when I'm not, playing, but when I'm, si when I'm sitting out and, and singing, I'm watching you. I'm watching the people around me. I'm singing in my own mind. I'm singing to you because I feel that this is how we do that personally, admonishing one another through song. And then Psalms 96, 1 through 3 says, sing a new song to the Lord. Let the whole earth sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Proclaim his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wondrous works among all peoples. Singing throughout all of history has shaped people, their culture, what they believe, what they think about. And so there, there are several things that, that singing does for us. It's not something that we should just throw off because, hey, I can't sing that well. Singing helps us first to praise God. The words that we sing, the songs that we choose to sing are all intentional. They all point us to something beyond ourselves. 
gets our focus off of me and myself and on to, to the Lord. And so Jesse, Jesse gave us last week, he talked about how we have dealt with uh, missional communities, which is uh, worshiping God by going out. Our DNAs are worshiping God through coming in and, and shepherding each other inwardly. And Sunday mornings are meant to worship God vertically. We are, we are not about ourselves here on Sunday mornings. We are about praising and worshiping God. So singing helps us to praise. Singing helps us to pray. There's words that we sing that give voice to emotion and feeling that we are experiencing that we may not be able to communicate. And I, I think about uh, in Romans when it talks about the spirit groans inwardly when we don't know what to say. I feel that music does that as well. It gives us a language to communicate, communicate to God. And so we sing songs of prayer. We sing songs of lament. We sing songs asking God to move among us. And then singing helps us proclaim the truth of God. To remind each other, like Colossians 3.16, to teach and admonish each other. It helps us bridge the gap between what's going on in our head to our heart. So scientifically, we see that singing improves your memory. There are songs that I remember singing in church as a kid that when I have gone through difficult things, that's what comes to mind. And often those songs are scripture. It helps you to remember the, the words of God. But it also helps us to express our emotion. And, and I feel like this is something that's very difficult in a lot of churches is what do you do with your emotion? And is music manipulation or is it not? Well, the truth is it, it is. That's how God designed music to, to function. Music is meant to make you feel something. Christian maturity is not emotional stoicism. And, and I believe that in America that, that's what's taught often. The more mature you get in Christ, the less emotion you express. And that's, that's a lie. Mature believers, and we're going to get into this in a little bit, are very emotional because they see how deep their need for Christ is. And that does something to you. And music helps you express that. So we sing. The next thing that we do on Sunday gatherings is pray. Often. We pray frequently. We have a prayer before the sermon. We call it the pastoral prayer where we specifically pray for, for things in, in uh, this church, in this city, in this nation. We're very intentional about the things that we pray for because we want, to, we want that to shape who we are as a church. When we read instructions about praying together corporately, 1 Corinthians uh, 14, 16 tells us that we shouldn't pray in tongues if we don't believe in that uh, in, un, in an unintelligible way um, because then people won't be able to give an amen. I didn't write this down, sorry. They didn't give. We need to be able to pray in a way that people understand so that we can agree with what's being said. That's the whole point of corporate prayer. And so we gather together, we pray for specific things. We, and then we also have a call to worship, which is not just this transition time, but this is a time to pray the scriptures, asking Jesus to come. We have a prayer after the music, before the preaching, of we call it of repentance 
and illumination, asking the Lord to forgive us of our sin corporately and to move by his spirit to open our eyes to what is going to be done here and now. And then we have communion, and then we have this, this time we call it the assurance of pardon, where scripture is read that reminds us that we are secure in Christ. This is another time for prayer. Prayer saturates our services, and, and I do believe that throughout America, this is the most neglected part of corporate worship. If we believed, and we would do it more, if we truly believed in the power of prayer and the effectiveness of, of the Spirit to move through our prayers, we would do it so much more. We would be gathering before the service and, and after the service. I don't, I don't even know what that would look like, but prayer does something. I don't know how it works. I don't, I don't know the relationship between God's sovereignty and our freedom and, and all of that, but it does. It, it moves and it works. And so we pray. And then the third thing is uh, the preaching of the word. Uh, the next component is preaching. Paul uh, said in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. And then later on in, in chapter 4, he tells Timothy to preach the word. And so a regular part of our service is the sermon, the proclaiming of God's word. And, and an elder will come up here uh, who is gifted in, in teaching and will study the word of God and proclaim to you the truth of God's word. But it's not, it's not, you don't just take our word for it, right? You hear this, you take this in, you examine it, you apply it to your life. Bible is meant for encouraging and strengthening and unifying and motivating the people of God to obey God, to serve and pursue their fellow man, and to glorify Christ. That is the whole purpose of this teaching time. And then finally, we have instructions in the scriptures about communion and baptism. Uh, these are the two ordinances that mark Christian gatherings. And so at the crossing, uh, we believe that baptism is for believers it is a, it is a symbolic, uh, symbolic of new life in Christ. Being immersed in the water, we're symbolically joined in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then communion is something that we do every single week. We eat the bread and drink the cup that signify Jesus' broken body and his shed blood for our sins. The Bible doesn't tell us how often to do this. Um, it just says that in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, that as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns, until he comes. We do this weekly uh, because we want to be reminded often of our great need and his great love for us. And so these are the nuts and bolts of Sunday mornings, these four things, why we do it. There's a lot more depth that could be gone, gone into, but essentially this is it. And so if I leave you with that, uh, it's, that's good. You understand why we're here, but, but you don't know the purpose of it. You're not encouraged and, and motivated and spurred on uh, to love and good works. And so what is the purpose of all of this? And I think that there's two purposes. The first is uh, for the glory of God. And the second uh, is for our joy. So why should we care about the glory of God? Why does that matter? This question by itself could consume our entire lives. 
there have been volumes of books and sermons uh, written on this, but I think I've boiled it down, uh, in my opinion, to those two reasons, that he alone is worthy of it, and his glory is our glory, our joy. The word glory, uh, by definition, means to honor, or the magnificence, great beauty of something. It also means uh, for us to be able to take great pride or pleasure in something. So in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. When we talk about the glory of God, what we're talking about this is this definition. This is uh, John Piper in um, a book that he wrote. Uh, the, the outward expression, God's glory is the outward expression of the intrinsic worth, beauty, and greatness of his perfection. One common analogy that we see when talking about God's glory is a diamond, right? Uh, every attribute that God possesses is like the face of a diamond. And every turn that you, you, you see something new and something more beautiful about that diamond, there's something that you didn't notice the first time. Every face of that diamond is, is unique and makes up the beauty of that whole jewel. He is the creator of everything. God sustains life. And every living thing, every molecule, every atom throughout the universe, he holds. Audrey uh, got this game. My daughter got this game uh, for Christmas a few years ago. It's called Pretty Pretty Princess. Okay, It's a wonderful game. Um, in this game, you're trying to collect all the jewelry, all the, all the jewels, uh, and be the first person to have on the ring, the earrings, the necklace, the bracelet. Uh, and then finally, the elusive tiara. You're trying to get that. Um, all these jewels, as beautiful as they are, are made up of plastic. Any attempt of the creation to claim glory for itself would be like me trying to get up here and say that this plastic ring is just as beautiful as the diamond. It's laughable. But we do it. We try to claim the glory for ourselves or, or say that there are, are things that are more beautiful than God. But God didn't just leave us uh, with his creation, right, to demonstrate his glory. He sent his son. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. It's important. All creation was created by him and it's for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That passage in itself could be this whole Sunday morning. Jesus is supreme. He is the 
visible image, humanly depicted of God's glory. His beauty and his majesty and his desire should be our greatest delight. But I think that if we're honest with ourselves, we'll see that our hearts begin to rebel against this. You may read passages like this or hear someone say the things that I'm saying right now, and inside there's a battle raging. If you really sit down and think about that all of our lives should be focused on glorifying God, bringing Him glory, there's something in you that hates that. That seems selfish. How could a good God be so consumed with Himself? What about me? What about my wants? There are endless thoughts and desires that we have that push against the glory of God. As we walk with God, over time, we see that our rebellion to God shifts. And, and, and we, we, we come to love God's glory more and more. But even the most seasoned believers would tell you that this part of them still exists. That we chase our own desires. We ignore the glory that is so clear around us, and we chase our own praise, our own glory, our own desires, our own wants. We want to make all of this about us, including Sunday mornings. And this is our sin. And it's the exact reason that Jesus came and died. Romans 5, 6 says that for while we were still helpless, some translations say while we were still enemies of God, while we were still sinner, sinners, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Ephesians 2 says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived, according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclination of the flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he has for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. His glory should be our greatest desire. And the more and more in line with that, we, we drift, are led as the Spirit sanctifies and, and moves us to be more and more like Jesus, the more we will see that God's desire for his own glory is our greatest good. It brings us our most delight and joy. Jonathan Edwards uh, said this in a sermon uh, to children. He preached this to his, his, the kids of his church. There is no love so great and so wonderful as that which is in the heart of Christ. He is the one that delights in mercy. He is ready to pity those that are suffering and sorrowful, that are in suffering and sorrowful circumstances. He is the one that delights in the happiness of his creatures. The love and grace that Christ has manifested does as much exceed all that which is in the world as the sun is brighter than a candle. Edwards understood that God's glory is our greatest good. And then the man that is known for, for preaching sinners in the hands of an angry God spent his entire life writing and speaking about the beauty and loveliness of Jesus. 
He said that everything that is lovely in God is in Christ. And everything that is or can be lovely in any man is in Jesus. It's in him. For he is man as well as God. He is the holiest, meekest, most humble in every way, the most excellent man that ever was. God's desire for his glory to be known is ultimately our greatest joy. And I think that for most of us at the Crossing Church, we know that to be true. In our head, we know that. But we do not, do we think about God in terms of truth and miss his beauty? In other words, are we so consumed with knowing the truth about things, about who God is, and having all the answers to every controversial topic and subject that comes up, that we forget to be captivated by the beauty and loveliness of Jesus. That Jesus has saved you. You were dead and now you're alive. You hate your sin and your desire to see his glory will grow. If this is you, all of life is worship, not just Sunday morning. Every aspect of your life is worship. Not a moment passes that this isn't true. But on Sunday morning, we seek to do this worship together. We seek the glory of God together. And so what is our response? When we come together on Sunday mornings, what should our worship look like? The prayers, the songs, the, the teaching, and the ordinances. What should that be like for us? We have to begin from a place of neediness and repentance. I listened to a podcast this week uh, that brought this up, uh, reminded me of how deeply important it is for us to be aware of our own neediness. He said uh, during the interview, the guy mentioned that organizations like AA, SA, and NA are places of healing, mainly because they begin from a place of need. Every single person that shows up to an AA meeting is declaring for all to see their brokenness. Worship gatherings should be the same. And yet we often come to this place from a place of completeness. We walk into this room uh, like we've got it all figured out, right? I'm put together. I have no needs. Being needy is difficult. Expressing our need is difficult. But the truth is that by walking into this room this morning, each one of us has declared that I'm broken Something is missing. I need help. Our neediness is the entry point into the presence of God. You see in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 3, it says that blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall receive the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You could read that, blessed are the needy. Being needy is not a sin. The, ne the neediness of Jesus is our example. Throughout the Gospels, we see that Jesus acknowledges his own humanity and his neediness. But I think in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see, uh, his, we see how his expression of, of his need leads to greater dependence on the Father. He weeps and he pleads, God, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. 
he goes to his, his disciples who are asleep. And he says, could you not stay awake with me in my hour of need? He's expressing that. He knows that he's needy, and he acknowledges it to the Father, to his friends. And in that expression, the Spirit gives him the strength to endure the cross. And it's in our expression of our great need that we are saved. You have to, at some point in your life, if you are going to come to faith in Christ, acknowledge the fact that you are broken, that you are a sinner, that you can't fix yourself. And yet, we live our faith like once we make that, that initial confession for salvation, that, that we're done, that it's over, you're good now. That's not true. We must acknowledge our great need in order to praise God. Jesus said that he came for the sick, not for those who are well. And when we express our need, it's in that that we're able to praise God and be thankful. And so the, the second response for us is to express our need, but then to praise and be thankful. And so we see that our praise should be endless. Psalm 145 says that I exalt you, my God, the King, and bless your name forever and ever. I will bless you every day. I will praise your name forever and ever. The Lord is great and highly praised. His greatness is unsearchable. There is no end to the amount of things that we can praise God for. But if you've got it all figured out and you're together and you're good, you don't need to praise God because you've got it figured out. But when we see how much we need, how desperate we are for a Savior, there's not a moment that goes by in your life where you can't point to God at work. And then our, our praise and thankfulness leads us to be lifted up, to be encouraged. Isaiah 41 says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. James 4.10 says that we should humble ourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Our, our neediness moves our hearts to a place of humility. Where we can say, I've got, I haven't figured this out, but praise be to God and Father who has, who's holding me. And that, that leaves you room to struggle. That frees you up to not be okay. That frees you from having to put on a charade in front of people. Because each and every one of us in this room is declaring our need. And we can praise God. We can sing. We can pray. We can take communion together. Acknowledging that need. And be encouraged. The Father says that he will be the one that lifts you up. He will be the one that encourages you. He will be the one that exalts you in your humbleness. So brothers and sisters, as we continue to gather each and every week, whether that's here on Sunday mornings, whether it's in missional community gatherings or in our DNA groups, what would happen if we stepped into each of those parts of our life 
and humility. Recognizing our need for God. And my hope is that we will grow in seeing the beauty and loveliness and majesty of Jesus. And so as we move from the preaching of God's word to the ordinances of taking communion, I'm going to pray that the Lord would help us. We could acknowledge that need. We don't, we don't, I don't think this ever happened here. Um, and and I, I get it. I get why. In churches uh, that have altar calls, a lot of times, that, that for a lot of us, that, that experience has been manipulated. Um, but there's something about, for me growing up, watching men and women kneel at the altar and pray before all of God's people. And then to have brothers and sisters come alongside them and pray with them. It's beautiful. I, I remember being so moved by that as a kid. Because you have grown people kneeling in submission to the Father and acknowledging their need. And the Spirit moves in humility. And so we want to be a church that sends people out to plant churches to see unreached people come to know him to plant churches among the nations to see our friends and our neighbors come to know Jesus to see people recover from addiction we want to be people that see that happen like we say we do that all of us could delight in Jesus Humility is where we need to be. And so Sunday morning uh, in this vision series is a place where, where we do that together. We come together in humility. Let's pray. Father, stand here and say all these words and know that I myself am so full of pride. Each one of us moves day to day, moment by moment, wrestling with this. It's not easy to be humble before. And yet that's a safe place to be. Would you help us? Help us to grow in our love for you and our desire to see you glorified. To be able to express our need to you, to each other. Lord, we know that all of this, it can happen right now in this moment, but often takes time. It takes time to build uh, trust when, when there's been hurt. It takes time to see your faithful, faithfulness, to believe. And what, like we say so often, God, we do believe. But Lord, would you help our unbelief? And Lord, as we uh, take communion together, 
as we continue to sing. But Jesus, we would, we would recognize you are here with us now. It's in Jesus' name. As we continue to